Hi there, and welcome to another episode of the Future of Jewish Podcast. I'm your host, Joshua Hoffman. On this episode, I am joined by Rabbi Eli Confer. He's the president and CEO of the Hadar Institute, whose mission is to empower Jews to create and sustain vibrant, practicing, egalitarian communities of Torah, Avodah, and Chesed. Confer is also a co-founder of the independent minyan Kehilat Hadar and has been named multiple times to Newsweek's list of the top 50 rabbis in America. Enjoy my conversation with Rabbi Eli Confer. Eli, thank you so much for taking the time to speak to me today. Really looking forward to this episode. Before we get into Hadar and everything you're working on today, why don't you give us sort of a peek behind the curtain of, you know, where you're from, your upbringing, everything that led you to where you are today. Great. It's an honor to be here. Um, I grew up in Providence, Rhode Island. My dad is uh, a rabbi. My mom is a Jewish educator. And I was in the first class in a school that they started in Providence, a Jewish day school. Um, So I really didn't want to be a Jewish educator, really never thought that was going to be my path. I wanted to be a journalist. So I spent some time as a banker, as an investigator. Um, but, um, when actually after some time in Israel, uh, seeing sort of the, the broad variety of what Jewish life could be, uh, and coming back to, to live in New York, um, spent some time, uh, thinking with some friends about what a Jewish community could look like if we designed it from scratch. Uh, so we did that. It was a minion called Hadar. It's still, uh, vibrant today on the Upper West Side. And, uh, and that really led me to understand that I indeed wanted to be a Jewish uh, educator and rabbi. So that's what I became and um, have now been uh, running Hadar with uh, my partners in crime for the last 15 years. Amazing. Uh, this is my 17th or 18th episode. I think that was the shortest introduction we've had. Everyone gets the same first question. So call a vote. Uh, <laughs> I'm curious though, you know, growing up, is sort of in the house of Jewish educators, as you mentioned, versus the Jewish education that we see, t- we see today. I mean, can you sort of take us through the evolution of, of how you have seen Jewish education from your childhood up until now, you as being a Jewish educator, what, what's changed, what stayed the same? Yeah, um, I would say in my, in my childhood, the, I often say that I was homeschooled, just not at home. <laughs> Meaning that my, my, my mom was my fifth grade uh, humash teacher and uh, you know my dad was the principal. And so they had an educational vision that they brought to me, but also to other kids in this school together. And so I think for me, um, my experience of Jewish learning was very integrated. It was what you did at home and what you learned in school were very tied together. And it sort of built a a wonderful universe of what it means to have a picture of Jewish living and learning. Um, I think that, I mean, at that time as well, that's an unusual experience for someone to have, um, to have that level of integration. And I think in some ways that, that really drives my own vision of what Jewish life could be. It doesn't have to be a siloed, pocket of your larger life, but, um, but something that is, is integrated. I think in the world that we live in today, integration and sort of cross-fertilization across different parts of your life is 
you know, an ongoing challenge. And so, um, so I think that, that that's just a harder, a harder goal to achieve. But, but, but when you are able to have that flow between your home life, your, your school life, your, um, you know, your professional life, and just see, um, see, see the through line in that, it can be very powerful. Why do you think integration has become so much more challenging today? Well, I think in general, people are more atomized, um, you know, separate from, from Jewish life. Um, you know, you, you, you have your, your, your work and you have your home life. I mean, the, the, the COVID um, uh, era has only exacerbated that, that sort of siloing of people's, uh, of people's lives. And, um, you know, I think in some ways it's amazing to have the internet that can link you to other people who are not near you, but in other ways it sort of diminishes the power of local community and experience. And so where, whereas it used to be that, you know, where you lived mattered because it was who you were near and who you would spend time with. Now you can spend time with anybody basically, no matter where they are. And so I can move out of the city or whatever it is um, and, uh, and still have, have ties to other people in my life. But it sort of leads to, uh, yeah, when I'm online or when I'm on this platform, I'm connecting with these people. And when I walk out my front door, I'm connecting with other people. It's, 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 a, it's a much more disjointed, I think, existence than, than it used to be. And gr growing up in Providence, very small, uh, town generally in a, in a small Jewish community, but it felt um, it felt sort of united in the sense that the people you see when you walk around town are the people who you build your communal life with, um, and that's that's a powerful experience that I think is harder to come by these days. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I'm just some of the thoughts that are going through my mind right now are like. You know, the people that sought out Jewish community when you were a child, which I guess by the looks of it, I don't know, you look like you're in your early 40s, so maybe 30 years ago, 30 years or something <laughs> like that. Um, but like, it's, it just seems to me that like, let's just say our parents' generation, you know, they, they sought out Jewish community uh, and the extensions of that, I think for different reasons than maybe um, our generation does. I would say that the... <laughs> The world is obviously continuing to change and we're not going back. We know we're only going forward. Um, digital, I think, will become virtual, literally and figuratively within the next mm -hmm. few years. So I guess it just, it, it, it feels to me as I'm trying to understand the so-called organized Jewish world more and more, it just feels to me that we're still holding on to sort of those, those pillars of why people joined Jewish communities 20, 30, 40, 50 years ago. Yet everything else um, in the rest of our lives, for those that don't live a highly orthodox life, everything else is, has progressed and evolved to now, you know, morph into the digital world and then eventually now coming up here in the virtual world. I, is that a proper analysis or do you see it differently? Uh, well, are you saying that's a good thing or a bad thing? Or are you just saying that's what it is? <laughs> no, I think that's what it is for, for better or for right. worse. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I, I, I think, look, um, also for better and for worse, Judaism has not been uh, a culturally um, aligned phenomenon. Judaism has always been countercultural. Um, and so in, in that way, I'm not sure that the power of Jewish living 
has to track 100% with what the dominant culture is experiencing or driving towards. Um, you don't want to lose the potential of the contemporary world and you know the benefits of how we connect in different ways now. But to me, Judaism is not necessarily judged on is it keeping up with the times um, because it never did. <laughs> it was always oriented to sort of offer a critique of the times um, to some extent and to, um, um, and to present an alternative to what the dominant culture valued. It's interesting. I mean, I, I totally agree with you. I mean, one of the things that sometimes gets lost in some of the work that we're trying to do is we're not trying to reinvent Judaism or make it something it never was. Um, in, in my personal Jewish journey, I find that things that have been talked about for thousands of years in the Jewish tradition are still very much relevant today, if not more relevant than ever, right? Just in terms of different wisdom uh, or thoughts or, or so forth. But I also feel that um, there has to be that balance, right? There has to be that. I think you just alluded to it where it's, you know, we want to, we don't want to necessarily change Judaism, but we do want it to evolve with the time so that it, it can remain relevant. And I'm curious, I, I don't think Judaism is the problem, right? Mm -hmm. I think the issue is the people in organizations that deliver the Judaism. I know, for example, that um, at Hadar, you have two podcasts, one for adults, one for uh, children. And I'm just curious, how do we, how do, you know, Jewish organizations uh, in your mind, based on your work with Hadar, how do they themselves update how they deliver Judaism, Jewish experiences, Jewish community, et cetera? What, what are some of the work that you guys are doing, especially with these podcasts? Yeah, so I appreciate it, just the opportunity to talk a little bit more about Hadar. Um, you know, I think our, our idea when we started Hadar was to imagine a world in which the substance and power of Jewish learning and living shines through. Uh, what would it take to allow people to experience the power of, of Jewish learning and living um, in, you know, in, in, in an immersive and intense kind of way? Um, that was really the driving vision at the beginning. And, and for that reason, we started with, with intense programs like, uh, like a, a full-on summer yeshiva experience where people, um, you know, from morning till night were studying and learning and eating and um, praying together. Um, and I, I think there's something powerful about um, collecting uh, participants who are so motivated to have that experience and are joining of their own volition to dive in to an intensive, immersive Jewish uh, life. Um, so we wanted to sort of capitalize on that demand and offer something that could, could meet that, that need. Um, now we are an institution, meaning it's a, it's a nonprofit and we have like an org chart and, and you know, do fundraising. But I think at the end of the day, the, the beating heart of, of what we're trying to put out in the world is, um, is mission driven and is very clear. In other words, it's, it's something that we um, saw a need for and, and put out into the world as opposed to, oh, we've been doing this for the last 100 years, I guess we'll do it for the next 100 years. In other words, there's not a lot of stagnancy in, in, in an organization that you start up because you remember why you started it. 
Um, I think that's also, you know, you mentioned the two podcasts that we have. One is called Tashma for uh, for adult listeners and for kids, it's called Torah Time. Um, you know, that that's an example of we're trying to leverage a medium that you know well, um, in which um, kids and adults are flocking to now, um, not because, um, you know, everything else that Judaism was doing up until now is suddenly irrelevant, but it's another um, pathway to reach people who are looking for something. So I think, you know, when, um, I'm not sure that I see the Jewish world as sort of the dichotomy of, you know, the organized Jewish world versus the, you know, innovative startup world. I think there's a lot of people, thank heavens, who are, who are trying to um, bring Judaism to the people who want to experience it in a powerful way. And that can be done, you know, through startups, that can be done through legacy organizations. I think the, the main driver for me is how mission-driven are the people who are um, in those organizations? How clear do they have a picture of what they're trying to put out in the world? And, and, and is it working? Is it, is, it, is it attracting the people who are looking for something? Because I think one of the constants in human history is humans are looking for something. They're not just, um, you know, get up in the morning, go to work, you know, uh, go to sleep. It's like the, the drive for meaning and connection and community the, the search for substance um, is age old. And so I think, you know, to the extent that we're trying to meet that demand in creative and relevant ways, then we're doing our job. So you're a rabbi and um, I'm just curious, and I've been thinking recently about, you know, what's the role of the rabbi today in moving forward? Um, because it seems to me that for a variety of reasons, it's, it's changing whether we like it or not. And I'm just curious as a rabbi yourself, what do you feel the role is of the rabbi moving forward? Is it the same as what it's been or do you feel that it's going to start changing uh, according to different trends or demographics or what have you? I think it's a really interesting question. Uh, one, of, one that I think about a lot. For me, the vision of a rabbi has always been coupled with the vision of a teacher. When you think of um, the rabbis who appear in the Talmud, um, the rabbis in our, in our textual tradition, by and large, they are playing a teaching role. Um, and there are many ways in which people can be teachers, people can be educators. But I think that, you know, our modern society doesn't pay teachers very well, but I think they still value teachers as a concept. They, people think they have something to learn and, and they would seek out a teacher in the broadest sense. So I think if rabbis can lean into the role of teacher, um, there's something sort of um, authentic and, and ancient about playing that role. I think, you know, rabbis play other roles that are also important. And what's a little bit confusing in this day and age is that those roles can get blurred because of the different pathways to achieve that. Like for instance, rabbis hold people and guide them through ritual, highlights of their life, their, their, their wedding or a funeral, um, you know, maybe a bar bat mitzvah. I think what's interesting about the current moment is um, that lay people are also getting into that business. <laughs> In other words, if you like read the wedding announcements, you know, someone is a universal life minister, which they became for the day in order to do the wedding of their friend or their relative. Um, and of course, structurally in Judaism, you don't need to be a rabbi to conduct any ritual uh, event like that. Um, so I, I think, 
where rabbis can be extra value add in a world in which anybody basically can get a license to wed other people or to um, you know guide them through a funeral is you know can you show up pastorally for people and that's of course a role that teachers play as well can I hold your emotional journey and not just deliver facts to you as a teacher um, but I think when rabbis are able to play the pastoral role that accompanies those ritual moments, then they are a cut above your average layperson who decided to, you know, get overnight uh, wedding license ability. Um, and, and, you know, in, in this day and age, I think people still need some sort of spiritual guidance and emotional support that rabbis can offer. Yeah, it's really interesting. I'm actually um, meeting with somebody here in Israel coming up called the Millennial Rabbi. Do you know him? Nope. Um, so I find it interesting because I'm, I'm trying to envision, you know, I'm, I'm spending more time now going into virtual reality and um, in general, right? And, and saying, what, what, you know, what is the virtual world going to look like? And, um, and how is, how, what is Judaism, how is it going to come to life in, uh, in a virtual world? Um, and, you know, what will be interesting is like, okay, the idea of a, a rabbi that serves at a congregation, well, to me, you know, congregations are not going to exist uh, the way that they used to, meaning you can, you can all, you know, when I say you, we as a virtual world, will all be able to subscribe to any virtual congregation, so to speak, or any virtual uh, movement or organization. And it's not going to be based on geographics necessarily. And so then it becomes, you know, you don't need, if, if all of a sudden you have, you know, all of the United States subscribing to this one sort of virtual congregation, well, you don't need all the rabbis uh, of the actual congregations to then be part of the virtual one because it becomes a little bit redundant. So I'm trying to figure out how a rabbi is going to play a part in sort right. of this virtual world. Yeah, well, I think that's a really interesting point, which is to say that to the extent a rabbi's main role is to deliver um, like an engaging Saturday morning experience or, uh, um, or powerful sermon, you know, thanks to COVID's acceleration, we've sort of stepped into a world in which a lot of Jews are now not going local anymore. They're going to your top providers of that experience uh, online. And whereas you know, being online on Shabbat is not my vision of how Shabbat plays out for, for many, even most American Jews, that's clearly what's going on. Um, and then I would say, I'm not sure that that um, makes the local rabbi irrelevant so much as um, shifts the emphasis on where they can bring value. Um, in other words, if, I, if I'm in a Zoom room or a broadcast or a virtual world with 10,000 other Jews and we're listening to a powerful sermon from a rabbi, that can be very meaningful, but I'm not gonna have a relationship with that rabbi or probably with anyone else in that virtual world. I mean, maybe to some extent you could have some connections, but they're so, somewhat attenuated. And so I think the power of the local rabbi then really does start to focus on the relational side. Um, 
And in some ways, maybe it's a corrective because, you know, you think back, you know, 50, 60 years ago, you would go into a synagogue, it was packed, there were hundreds of people in the room. You might not also have had a relationship with that real life rabbi. They, may have also, they might have also seen sort of like distant and unapproachable. Um, and now I think to be a successful rabbi locally, um, the, whole, the whole value is about the relationship and the approachability. Um, and so I, I actually think that whereas the emphasis could be shifting that, that eternal human need to connect directly with someone who can guide you and provide you with some spiritual support will outlast any shift into a virtual congregation that you're predicting. I wanna talk a little bit about your book, Empowered Judaism, which is actually how we got connected. Um, you know, I know you wrote it a few years ago, but um, I think it's now more relevant than ever. Um, tell us a little bit about why you wrote the book and ultimately what people can get out of it. Yeah, so Empower Judaism was a book that I wrote because um, about 10, 12 years ago, um, a lot of the focus that I was um, doing in my professional and spiritual life was working with minyanim, with independent minyanim that are sort of startup congregations and communities in America and, and actually now uh, in Israel as well. Um, and what I saw as the power of those communities were people who were empowered to take control of their Jewish life and start something that reflected the vision of how they wanted to, um, you know, mainly on Shabbat, how they wanted to uh, connect as a community, pray and connect to each other. Um, and it's, it, was, it was a very exciting moment in which um, people were sort of saying, I don't have to limit myself to the offerings that are out there. I can build something new. Um, of course, minion building is an old Jewish practice. And uh, and in some ways, although it was sort of termed as innovative and, and new on the scene, and to some extent it was, uh, I always really saw the, the work of Minyanim as a return to um, the, the natural way that Jewish people would gather um, and have gathered for hundreds of, if not thousands of years. The, the introduction to the book was written by a professor of American Judaism, Jonathan Sarna, who sort of traced the, the line of Minyan growth going back to the 1800s in America. And his point was sort of like, this is the next wave in a line that's been going on for a long time. Um, and that's what it always felt like to me. In other words, sort of like it was a, a return to tradition more than a break with tradition. I think why it's relevant today is mainly because of the ethos of empowered Judaism is to say, you don't have to rely on someone else to do Judaism for you. You can actually take control of your Jewish life and, um, and, and envision and build the world that you want to see out there. Now, I do think that what it means to be an empowered Jew doesn't simply, it's not an attitude shift alone. It doesn't mean like, oh, yesterday I was sufficing with what was out there and today I'm, I'm you know, creating better options. I think it's an expression of a vision um, in which Jews are educated enough that they actually can be empowered to build that Jewish life. And I think education and um, sort of connection to the sources of how you might become empowered is critical. And, and, and that's sort of where I ended up devoting my professional energies is to, is to um, allow more Jews to become more educated, 
more connected and for them to take that education and connection and, 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 and bring it forward in an empowered orientation to their Jewish life, as opposed to sort of just taking what's out there and either accepting or rejecting it. So it's kind of like this DIY Judaism, right? I mean, it's, it's something that I know um, recently has picked up this do-it-yourself Judaism. You sort of talked about it in a different word, empowered Judaism, but to me, it, it feels like it's sort of the same family. Going back to our conversation about organizations, right? Where, you know, they, they, they rely on people plugging into them financially, communally, and otherwise. And here we're now talking about sort of the, the individual in, 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 the, uh, in their own Jewish journey, taking what they want from it and sort of crafting it in ways that feel good and right for them. And it feels like to me, there's a little bit of a, um, a little bit of a contradiction there, right? Between the individual and the organization. The organizations have had tremendous power in the Jewish world really since probably the late 1800s, early 1900s and have grown exponentially since then but now we're talking about sort of coming back to the individual and empowering their jewish journey what how, how do you see that as somebody who is the head of an organization yeah well well i think that um i don't really think there is something entirely diy about judaism that is to say even the minions themselves were leveraging the investment of a lot of institutions in the education of the people who ended up starting those minions in other words like going to day schools and, and, you know, having experiences, you know, on college campuses um, with Minyanim there, synagogues, youth groups, all that fed into the vision of what one does with their own Jewish life. So I guess where I would see it is less of a total dichotomy between DIY Judaism and organized Jewish life, but rather, um, you know, what's the end goal of any Jewish organization? Is it to get you to, to pay dues to the organization? <laughs> um, or is it to get you to have a powerful Jewish life that you believe in and care about? Now, sometimes when those align, everything's great. Like I, I would love to pay dues to an organization that helps me be empowered um, and, and, and to live out my vision of Jewish living. And so I don't think it has to be necessarily outside of institutions, but I think if you take as an assumption that the success of, let's say Jewish schooling as a kid is, that you, you know, belong to a synagogue, but don't show up or, you know, make a donation to a federation, but don't really get involved, but therefore are labeled as affiliated. To me, that's not really the, the line of success. The line of success is, do you feel inspired and emboldened to take Jewish life to the next level? You might do that through your synagogue. You might do that by starting a minion, but the point is, um, you've, you, you've had some experience and education that allows you to envision what is possible. And, and I think to the extent that people are taking more ownership of their own Jewish journey and not just relying on whatever's handed to them in a particular moment, that's exciting. When it, where it gets dangerous is if people say, you know, I don't need any Jewish infrastructure at all. I, I can figure it all out on my own without any, you know, educational journey or teachers or um, communal infrastructure. Then I feel like it might be a little bit sort of moving into arrogance and, and probably misalignment with what's what's possible. So I think there is a delicate balance there between 
you know, institutions and organizations helping you achieve that level of empowerment um, without joining the institution as the end all be all of success, um, but also valuing the way in which institutions can provide you with that um, uh, background to really envision what's possible in Jewish living. So one of the things that I find interesting about this conversation is that by giving more power to the individual, I believe that the uh, one of the outcomes of that will be that they the individual ends up coming back to the community and to the organizations. But I do feel that today, um, and this is of course a generalization, not speaking about every single organization, but I do feel in general that uh, many of the organizations for a variety of reasons don't feel comfortable empowering the individual for whether it's self-serving reasons or insecurity or whatever. And so that they end up pushing them away or not welcoming in new sort of community members versus saying, no, we, we want to empower you. And by doing that, we trust that you'll end up coming back to us somehow, somewhat. Yeah, I, I think in some ways, look, empowerment and education in my mind are very intertwined. Um, and the question is, what is the goal of an education? Um, you know, is the goal, uh, like, you think about this like in a totally non-Jewish context, like when you learn math in school, is the goal of math to get you to achieve a grade that will allow you to attend a particular college, in which case math is simply just um, almost like a checkbox that you need to gain some utilitarian mastery over to move to the next level of, uh, of, of your life? Um, or is math about, you know, understanding the mysteries of the world and putting order to them? Or, you know, is math about taking control of your own finances or, um, you know, understanding how computers or space travel works? Um, and so when I'm teaching you math, what's my end goal? Is my end goal to help you get into the college? Or is my end goal to allow you to take the gift of math and apply it where you feel inspired? Um, so I, I don't think that depends on the institution that's teaching you math, meaning every institution has a culture and so they might be culturally oriented one way or the other, um, but you could imagine a very powerful um, old school way of learning math that empowers the student to take those principles and apply them in exciting ways outside of a utilitarian mode where you're just getting accepted to college. And the same applies with, with Jewish education as well, is the goal of Jewish education to um, to get you to land in an organization later on in life. Like if you go to Hebrew school, then your chances of joining a synagogue later are upped and therefore like it's worth it. Is that the metric? Or is the metric to say, you know, Judaism offers so much in terms of organizing your life around a vision and a purpose. And I wanna give you as much as I can around that. You might express that vision and purpose in a synagogue later on and pro probably you will. But you might not, um, you might you know, do other things with that education. The, the goal of it is to give you access and ownership around it and, and not to have me be the only gateway to your Jewish wisdom. I think that's where things get dangerous when rabbis or teachers say, well, the only way, not that they say it explicitly, but implicitly the model is, the only way you're gonna learn the next thing is if you come to my next class. And then you're totally reliant on the teacher for your journey. 
sometimes that can be powerful, but at, at the end of the day, it sort of runs out of, uh, either you run out of teachers or you run out of, you, you achieve a certain level and then, and then, and then you're, you're out of that system. Um, you know, what would it look like if all of the education orientation was not about you coming back to my next class, but rather you now can do this on your own. You've been leveled up to, you know, you think about it with reading, it's like reading English, let's say, you know, if, if our whole orientation to literacy was and come back to class and we'll read the next book together, then no one could ever read the newspaper on their own. You know what I mean? And that would be a limited society. Um, so I think that's, that's where the empowerment can be exciting is to say, I'm gonna teach you how to read on your own. And that's an amazing uh, gift that you can apply in many different ways. You might come back to learn with me more, but you might take it in other directions. I want to talk a little bit about, uh, I, I believe I read that you have uh, a longtime teacher, Rabbi Daniel Landis. Uh, I had a previous guest on my uh, podcast, uh, Hal Lewis from Spiritus Institute, who talked about the importance of having teachers, of not being afraid, even if you're the, uh, in this case, you know, you're the president and CEO of the Hadar Institute, uh, still understanding that you can be a, a student as much as a teacher. And I'm just curious if you could share with us uh, for in a few minutes, um, you know, what are some of the, the things that uh, Rabbi Landis taught you, instilled in you that you still, you know, take with you today? Yeah, well, my relationship with Rabbi Landis is very special because it started really uh, many years ago when I was living in Israel for uh, for the year in 1995. And, um, and it was his first year in Israel, uh, having made Aliyah from, from Los Angeles. And, and, um, and I, um, I had the privilege of having a lifelong teacher. Um, that is to say, you know, when I was in my early 20s, I encountered him at first and I didn't actually get smicha from him. From, I didn't get rabbinic uh, ordination from him until just three years ago. Um, and, and I think it was, it was two things that were powerful about that. One is to have a teacher for so many years of your adult life. Uh, and it's not like we were constantly in contact throughout that period, but just having a teacher figure, I think is, is powerful. Um, you know, it's, it's relational, it's not organizational, it's relational. Um, and, um, and also the, the ability to say, um, you know, in the middle of your career, uh, I'm going to take time out of being CEO and go back to full-time study to, uh, to be a student again, just is an orientation of, we, we always have something to learn. Um, even even longtime teachers, and to be able to do that process with him um, just a few years ago when I was uh, uh, on break from my day to day in New York um, at Hadar and, and living in Israel for that for that year in 2018 um, was uh, was was powerful just for me to uh, to sit and learn and be a student a hundred percent, and you know teachers guide you both in the material that they teach you technically, but also in the role modeling that they, they play in your life. And, you know, being able to watch someone, um, how they interact with other students, how they um, think about the Jewish world has been powerful for me for all this time. You mentioned the fact living in Israel. Um, 
looking back, what did that, what did that have, you know, what kind of impact did that have on your Jewish journey? I'm asking because to me, there's feel, it feels like there's two camps of Jews, uh, again, on a high level, general speaking uh, type of thing. I, I feel that there's sort of the Jews that, you know, they know about Israel, they probably haven't been here, maybe no plans to come here, either for a visit or for even a part-time stay. And then there's the ones that do come here, whether it be for a part-time stay, make Aliyah, maybe they move back, maybe they stay. Like the relationship with the country and the people and the history and everything is obviously very different between those two camps. Um, it, it, you know, birthright is is obviously sort of, you know, an opportunity for more Jews uh, to come and see Israel. But then you could say 10 days is is nothing and probably you know, over the course of a lifetime is not going to have the kind of impact that we'd all like it to have. I'm just curious, like, do you do you think that we should be putting more of an onus on sort of relocations, if you will, um, between Jews around the world to Israel, even for six to 12 months, which, you know, is, is not that much, but it's still enough to really understand a little bit more than 10 days, for example. Just curious, yeah. like looking back on your time in Israel and how that's impacted your sort of Jewish life and Jewish journey, and maybe how what we can learn from that, if anything. Yeah, well, it, personally, Israel has had a major impact on my life. Um, and I've had the privilege of living in Israel for four different years at different points in my life. Um, and I would say also, just getting back to education for a moment, the, the seeds of Hebrew that were planted in me through my Jewish education as a child uh, ended up also um, allowing me to to experience what it means to live in Israel in a deeper way because I had access to the language directly. Um, look, for me, um, living in Israel was powerful on so many levels. It offered so many visions of what a spiritual and engaged life could be. Um, it wasn't chocolate, vanilla, strawberry. It was like, you know, a full, um, almost like being unplugged from the matrix. Uh, you know, it's like you see the, the, the real potential of what Jewish uh, spiritual living can be expressed in so many different varieties. Um, that's something that is that is very special about, about Israel. And I would say the other piece of it was when I was there with my family and my kids, um, they were in Israeli schools and had Israeli friends and themselves learned how to speak Hebrew to see the possibility of what it means to join the project of, um, you know, of Israel as a place to live more permanently. Even we had the glimpse of that, um, when our kids were were in that uh, mode, I think that also was was very powerful uh, in my own sense of what what Jewish life could look like in this day and age when when the state of Israel exists um, and 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 it's an option for people to actually live in. Um, you know, I, I think in terms of other people getting to Israel, I would say, you know, anything we can do to link up the Jewish people's experience such that the diaspora and, and, and Israel are not two theoreticals. You know, I theoretically know about Israel, I read about it, but if I actually experience it and live it and have personal connections and relationships there, um, my understanding of what it means to be a Jew in the world is, is altered. And I would say that's the reverse as well. We just welcomed at Hadar, a, a group of Israelis um, who were visiting to sort of tour what diaspora Jewish life looks like um, and gave them a, a sense of what we do at Hadar in terms of our learning and approach. 
And, you know, for a lot of them, they had never heard of such a thing of, you know, a place in which there's a serious high level uh, of Jewish learning and all people are counted as equal citizens in the, in the Minyan. Um, uh, and so I think there's an, an enrichment that goes both ways, but in terms of, you know, di diaspora living Jews to spend time in Israel, um, and, 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 and ideally, as you say, you know, not limited to a 10 day sort of um, uh, designed experience, but of, of sort of a deeper level of living and connection. Well, that would be amazing. I mean, I, I, you, you see it um, to some extent, the, 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 the value of political Zionism around, you know, what's happening in Ukraine and just having a safe haven for Jews is so important to start off with, but going beyond that level um, to, you know, to allow Jews to experience the variety and the nuance of what um, Israeli Jewish life is, um, I think, I think is, is really powerful. And, and, and the more of that, the better, in my opinion. <laughs> this has been really a phenomenal conversation. Thank you so much for doing this. And uh, best of luck moving forward. Thank you so much. Really appreciate it.